You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. We're looking together this morning at Acts chapter 23. You'll find this in the Pew Bible on page 932. We'll be reading together verses 11 through 22. So Acts 23, verses 11 through 22, hear the word of God. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food until we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near." Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and, going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Well, Paul had been through some difficult times and some severe tribulations. He had been abused in the temple square, arrested by the Roman tribune, and almost flogged with whips. He had endured mistreatment physically, emotionally, spiritually, and legally. And the Jewish Sanhedrin, which was the highest court in Israel, was dead set against him. Humanly speaking, the situation was bleak, and yet things were about to get worse. (laughs) A large group of Jewish zealots conceived a plot to assassinate the apostle. So to say it was stressful, I think, would be an understatement. Even Paul may have been anxious. I think he felt alone, threatened, understandably a little bit confused, 
because he had faced more than his share of adversity and plenty of hardship, and now this. And it was the tribune himself who called a meeting of the Tanhedrin as a way to find the truth. You see, he still didn't know what was going on. Flogging with a spiked whip was the usual method of getting information. But since he couldn't torture a Roman citizen, the tribune thought that this might work. And as the apostles stood before the Jewish council, he was well aware of the political divide among them. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were sharply divided on many things, and they hated one another. And so Paul shrewdly says, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, the son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. The Pharisees were for it, the Sadducees were against it, and it caused, I quote, a great clamor. So again, the tribune had to rescue Paul, removing him and taking him to the barracks. And it's not an easy situation for the apostle to endure, not knowing what's going to happen. The Jews hated him, the Romans didn't know what to do with him, they didn't really care about him, and the passage before us tells us that now a plot was formed to kill him. And it was in the midst of these circumstances that Jesus spoke to him. The Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So at just the right time, Christ gave his servant this wonderful promise. And it was a much-needed word of encouragement in the midst of some great difficulty. But what follows in Paul's experience seems on the surface to contradict the promise, doesn't it? The plot to assassinate him appears to be inconsistent with the pledge. How do we harmonize, because we must, God does not contradict himself, how do we harmonize the providence of God with the promise of God? or the promise of God with the experience of Paul's life. Is there harmony? The Lord said he would testify in Rome, but what if he's killed in Jerusalem? What are we to make of this? Why does his word so often seem so contrary to his providence? And I think we're going to try to answer these questions in the time that remains. First of all, we see that since the Jews could not silence Paul by the mob or by the court, they decided to kill him. More than 40 zealots bound themselves by oath to carry out the plot. No food, no drink would pass their lips until this troublesome Jew was dead. And regrettably, it says that the chief priests and the elders were complicit in the conspiracy. They agreed to ask the tribune to bring the prisoner for more questioning. But of course, in the providence of God, Paul's nephew was made aware of the plot. And we don't know anything else about this young man, but he did tell Paul. Perhaps he overheard the conspirators discussing the details. Maybe he got intelligence from someone who defected from the group. We're not told. But it does show that God has many ways to expose darkness. And I hope we can appreciate the somewhat equitable disposition of the tribune. You know something, Roman soldiers are not given to gentleness or sentimentality. But it seems this man was fair. 
He was determined to protect the prisoner under his charge, and the centurion who escorted Paul's nephew to the tribune was equally fair-minded in the providence of God. And so when the boy relayed the intel to the tribune, the officer decided to send Paul away. And the plan was exposed and the plot was foiled. Now, is it not wonderful, don't you think, how Jesus Christ encouraged the apostle when it was needed? Despite the appearance of failure, the Lord's promise would be fulfilled. Obviously, God's purpose for Paul would unfold in an entirely unexpected way. And it's often that way, isn't it? God loves to prove his power through weakness, through failure, through imperfection. Remember Joseph saying to his brothers, as for you, you meant it evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. And so our God is able to overrule evil for good, to carry out his plan through the wicked schemes of evil men. And Luke tells us the Lord had come to Paul's prison cell and stood by him. I think that was in fulfillment of that pledge that was made by Jesus before he ascended into heaven. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. To Paul, Jesus said, take courage, be of good cheer. Let not your heart be troubled. Don't let your circumstances discourage you because I'm with you. And this is sage advice, I believe, to any sincere Christian who is facing hardships in this life. It's always been this way. Do you remember what Isaiah said in that wonderful chapter 43 that's a favorite of so many? Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. That's a promise that he always keeps. And so Christ encouraged Paul by reaffirming his commission to preach the gospel. He said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And he appeared, and with these words, he cheered and strengthened the apostle. After all, Paul was a human being. Like the rest of us, he was made of flesh and blood. And for that reason, I think he too was liable to discouragement. Remember what he said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 1? Now, this is the apostle Paul speaking. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. And here he was sitting alone in prison, and he needed to be encouraged. On two other occasions, Paul received special encouragement from heaven. In Corinth, when they opposed and reviled him, the Lord appeared. That's one. On the voyage to Rome, an angel of God encouraged him and said that none of them would perish. That's two. And here Jesus commends his past labor and commissions him for future service. And I don't want us to overlook the fact that the work Paul had accomplished in Jerusalem was acceptable. Isn't that what he said? 
You have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem. And what a comfort that must have been for one who wished to serve the Lord. We all know our faults and weaknesses, don't we? Our best works are imperfect. They're defiled in the sight of God. Many of us look back on our lives, and sometimes we wonder if anything was acceptable. But the Lord covers our failures. He commends us for what his grace was able to do in and through us. And Jesus said to him, as you testified in Jerusalem, you did well. So you must testify also in Rome. And it was a promise that he was not through with Paul because he knew where Paul was and he knew why he was there and he, would, he knew what would happen to him. So despite the closed doors and the fastened locks, the Lord stood by him, just as he is able to stand side by side with any of his servants in any situation. And Christ himself was afflicted. He afflicted, he is afflicted when you and I are afflicted. And he's ready and willing to help us. And yet this promise from Christ sometimes seems so contrary to experience, especially the experience of Paul. Because the very next day, they uncovered this plot to assassinate him. And I wonder, perhaps Paul was confused and wondered if God had deserted him. He stood by himself before this Jewish council, feeling alone. But of course, the desertion was only apparent. It wasn't real. It was only temporary, it wasn't final, because the Lord is good even when our circumstances seem contrary to his goodness. He's always good. The promise of Christ stands notwithstanding adverse circumstances. And despite the diabolical and satanic schemes of these zealots, Paul was preserved. He would bear witness to Christ in Rome, and his enemies would pick up the tab. <laughs> it would be an all-expenses-paid trip to the capital of the Roman Empire. And this is the way it always works, because everything is in service to our Savior. And so I quote the words of Paul, who told us, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom. There's no beating around the bush about that. Many tribulations. Everyone who will live in heaven must expect tribulations on earth. And no one is exempt. This has been determined in the eternal counsels of the triune God from before the foundation of the world. It's been established, it's fixed, it's settled. Through many tribulations, we enter the kingdom of God. And so Jesus says to his disciples, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Yeah, I know that Christ accomplished salvation. Yes, I know that we have only to believe to be saved. But the hard part is persevering in faith through the tribulations of this life. Our faith is tested when we hear of tragedies like Divine this morning, who was badly burned over most of her body, eight years old. Lord, why? Our faith is tested when we endure those tragedies ourselves. We're bereaved. 
And yet, when we gave up our names to Christ in baptism, that was the agreement. If we are to follow him to glory, we must follow him through the cross. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And we do this in part by practicing daily self-denial and self-sacrifice. Because there is no better way to prepare for martyrdom than to live such a life. As Christians, if you are a Christian, you and I are called to deny ourselves and to mortify the flesh and to renounce the world. Now, it's a beautiful world, but renounce the spirit of the world. We are not to overindulge our appetites. We're not to seek comfort at all costs. In our daily afflictions, we are not to complain. I'm so prone to complaining. Lord, forgive me. We are not to complain. We're to rejoice in suffering. <laughs> That's otherworldly. And this kind of training will teach us to endure hardship and live with affliction to the glory of God. Unbelievers are afflicted. In this way, God's people are taught to prefer salvation over the present world. Let me ask you, which of you or I would deny Christ to safeguard our power or our position or our prestige? Would we? Theoretically, we'd say none of us would. But practically, you know as well as I do that our flesh recoils from pain, suffering, deprivation. So we need to be trained through trials which would go against our consciences. If we were to deny Christ for the sake of the trinkets of this world, it would, deny, it would go against our conscience. And I think each of us should carefully consider those sobering words that Pastor Pilon read earlier. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What sane person would give up eternal life for trinkets? But does that not prove the irrationality of sin? Because sinners are spiritually insane. Sinners suppress the truth in unrighteousness, and as sinners we choose death over life. Sinners covet the whole world and care so little about losing their soul. If I could gain all the wealth and the power and the pleasure in this world by denying Christ, and yet in doing so lose my eternal soul, what good would that be? So God uses the tribulations in this life to help wean us from the comforts of this world. It's fading. Solomon says in Proverbs 17, the discerning sets his face toward wisdom, but the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. I take that world. Don't care about my soul, but I'll take that world. 
And you and I are tempted to let all sorts of trifles take the place of that one thing that is necessary. Because true satisfaction, to be truly satisfied, cannot be obtained by anything found in this life. You know why? Because God has put eternity into man's heart. Which means, I think, in our hearts, by nature, we have this inbred sense of deity. We were made for eternity. You were. I was. We're made for an infinity of duration. And by faith, when we're joined to the Son of God, He alone is able to satisfy that deepest longing in our hearts. Because Jesus Christ is eternal. He's the living God and he fulfills our desires. And that was the message with which Paul was entrusted as an apostle. And it was for this gospel that he was put on trial and stood before the council. And it was of this gospel that he would testify even in the palace of Rome. So why does God not deliver us from the trials? Why does God not protect us from suffering? And I think there's at least five reasons. First of all, to keep us true to the Christian faith and devoted to the Christian practice. I don't have to remind you that we're so prone to sinful self-confidence and empty human pride. You know it as well as I do. Recall how Paul himself was caught up to the third heaven and he heard things that wasn't even lawful to repeat. He says to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. We don't know what that thorn was, but we do know it was painful And at the same time, we know that whatever it was, it was sent from God. Yes, Paul did say it was a messenger of Satan. But God ordained it. God overruled it for good in the life of Paul. And he does the same for you and I. You and I are always in danger of pride. Every one of us. So God will afflict the flesh to keep the soul to keep us humble and faithful. Paul prayed earnestly for deliverance, but Christ didn't remove the thorn. His grace was sufficient because his power was made perfect in weakness. So the first reason is to keep us. The second reason is to train us in depending on the Lord Jesus for strength and courage. And this goes hand in hand with the previous reason, but I do think it's distinct. Because we're taught that the Lord is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And yet, neither you nor I are prone to rely upon him. So we have to be trained. Over time, through trials, we learn the truth of his abiding care. And our prayer is to become more closely and constantly dependent upon him. So to keep us, to train us, third, to sanctify us through the trials and afflictions we're called to suffer. This is what James teaches us. The ladies went through this in one of their Bible studies. I think it was a great study. 
James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So we discover that even the best of Christians are called to suffer. Of course, any difficulty is a temptation to doubt the goodness of God, isn't it? Through our afflictions, the devil tries to draw us into sin and unbelief. If God was good, would he let you suffer like that? If God was good, would he take away your loved one? But the Spirit of God uses these kinds of afflictions to improve and sanctify us. And this is how the Father of lights expresses his love. Hebrews 12. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. The best of his children need discipline. We all have faults and folly. He may leave the devil's children to their sins, but he'll not abandon us. We are members of his family. We are heirs of life. We're the objects of his love. And I believe, and I think you would agree with me, that it would be the height of cruelty for a father to leave his children in sin without any discipline. The apostle says, if you are left without discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So to keep us, to train us, to sanctify us forth, to test us as to the sincerity of our faith. In that text from James 1, the apostle referred to the testing of your faith. So tribulations, my friends, are not just to sanctify us, but to confirm the sincerity of your faith. Are you sincere? How do you know? It's easy to say you love Christ when things are going well. What about in the valley? What about when 10 children are taken away in one fell swoop? What about when you lose everything and your wife tells you to curse God and die? This is what David wanted when he wrote Psalm 26. Prove me, O Lord. Try me. Test my heart and my mind. David wanted a thorough investigation. He called for the most rigid examination. Lest he be deceived, let the exact truth be known and not left under delusion. God, sift through the evidences of my godliness to prove whether my faith is genuine. And the testing is not for God to know. The testing is for us to know the nature of our faith. The Lord is well aware of what's inside you and me. Jesus knew what was in all men. God tests us through suffering that we may see the proof of his grace at work. You're genuine. You're real. Fifth, he keeps us to train us, to sanctify us, to test us, and finally to give us the privilege of suffering for the sake of Christ. That probably was not on your list. I don't know about you, but I don't instinctively view pain as a privilege. But this is what the apostle says in Philippians 1. It has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. 
And these two gifts are not only precious, but they're granted on behalf of Jesus. To believe in him is a gift. To suffer for the sake of Christ is a gift. It's painful, but it's a great honor to endure infliction on behalf of Jesus. Do you remember when the apostles were beaten by the officers of the Sanhedrin? It says they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. I have to say that the suffering of Christians is of tremendous advantage to the gospel. It's through afflictions that we demonstrate the truth and sincerity of our hope. John's example, his wife is in heaven. He has hope that is unabated, and that's a wonderful evidence for the truth of the gospel. God's glory is magnified as we count his name more precious than life. Pastor Pilon read, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I think what we should do is to be thankful for the sovereign grace of God who ensures salvation. There's an old saying, and the saying goes like this. God has not guaranteed an easy voyage, but he has promised a safe harbor. That's true. And Christ's promise to Paul implied that they couldn't kill him in Jerusalem. The Lord would have him testify in Rome. He wasn't done with him. So let's remember that despite the difficulties in this life, the Lord is always good. I'm going to close with an example. Do you, have you ever heard of Johnny Gibson? He's a professor of Old Testament at Westminster Theological Seminary, an Irishman by birth. And he's no stranger to grief. When Johnny Gibson's young son, Ben, was about three years old, Johnny would often point out to Ben the different phases of the moon. They'd go outside and look up. And Johnny would ask Ben, what kind of moon is it? And Ben would say, it's a half moon, it's a quarter moon, whatever the case may be. Then Johnny would say, but what is the shape always, Ben? And Ben would say, the moon is always round. Johnny would say, Ben, that's an illustration of God's character. It's always, he's always good. Well, when their infant daughter, Layla, died, the family was grief-stricken, as you can imagine. And as Johnny would take young Ben home from the hospital, Ben would ask, why isn't Layla coming home? And Johnny would say, well, he's, he's gone, she's gone to heaven. God called her home. Well, Daddy, will Layla ever come home once she's done with Jesus? And he said, no, Ben, Layla's in heaven for good. And then he said, Ben, what shape is the moon? And he'd say, it's always round. And Johnny would say, well, it shows that God is always good. Even when you can't see it, he's always good. And he wrote a children's book called The Moon is Always Round. It's a powerful reminder. As Nahum says, the Lord is good a stronghold in the day of trouble. 
He knows those who take refuge in him. Dear friends, how often are you and I tempted by circumstances to doubt the goodness of God? We see him only as a half moon. But you and I both know the moon is always round. William Cooper Cooper was a talented hymn writer who struggled his whole life with depression. And at one point, William Cooper was institutionalized for insanity. But he became a Christian. And he became a close friend of John Newton. And it was Cooper who wrote this hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And in that hymn, which we're going to sing in a minute, this is what he says, and I close with this. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're always good. That despite our circumstances and the testing of our faith, you're always there. Your love is everlasting and your promise is fulfilled in Christ. We pray that you'll help us to sing your praise with joy and thanksgiving in our hearts. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.